Now, last week we continued our study through the book of Nehemiah, studying the, the challenges that Nehemiah faced in his life. We said that any work of God will face opposition from the enemy, either from without and sometimes from within. But Nehemiah handled all those oppositions in the same way that we should handle them and even handle the internal conflict the way that God's word challenges us to. So now we come to chan- uh, chapter 6. At this point, the internal struggle had ended. Nehemiah kind of settled that. The people were calmed down. There wasn't any conflict going on. But now they're getting back full steam rebuilding the wall. Nehemiah 6 verse 1 says, When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Jessam the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. That's the first part of verse 1. Even with the external and internal struggle, opposition, things that go wrong in your life, people were still able to complete what God had called them to do. Now, we look at that and we say, well, it's, you know, it's a wall. No big deal, right? They built a wall. However, considering the wall was two and a half miles long, 39 feet high, and eight feet thick, no power tools, no forklifts, no cranes, nothing, and they built this wall. And they did it all in less than two months. Nehemiah 6.15 says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elo in 52 days. Imagine that. Building a wall that's two and a half miles long, 39 feet high, 8 feet thick, in less than two months. And they faced opposition as they built it. No matter what struggle we face, no matter what God calls us to do, no matter how impossible it seems to accomplish, if you face the opposition, you handle it, and you keep working, God is able to complete what he calls you to. The Bible says he will, he will finish the good work he starts in you in spite of the opposition and conflict. Now, we've been talking about rebuilding as a church you know, since 2020 was a, like a nuclear disaster, but I, I thought about that personally. We're rebuilding as a church. But what, what in your life, personally, that needs to be maybe rebuilt or changed? What relationship do you have in your life that's, that needs restoring or, re, or rebuilding? Do you feel like there's too much against you? Ah, it's too impossible and it'll never get done. It works too hard. I don't have enough time to do that. And I think every one of us has that in us. There's always that relationship. There's always that thing going on that we know we should address. We know we should try to fix, whether it's relationship or something that you do in your job or your home. And you have that in your heart to change. But maybe you think it's not, you can't do it. Maybe you think it's too hard. Oh, there's too much opposition. They're, they're never going to listen to me. They're never going to change. Who are you praying for? In our 21 and 21, who are you praying for to come to know Christ? How how impossible is it for them to come to know Christ? We all know those people, and I was one of them. There's no way you're going to convince me this Christian thing is real. None. You can't convince me. And guess what? People prayed for me and kept praying for me, and God opened my eyes to the truth. So what what are you praying for? What are you trusting God for? What do you need God to restore in your life? Nothing, the Bible says nothing is too hard for God. Nothing is impossible for God. He can do it. 
So in spite of the opposition and conflict, God will rebuild, rebuild and restore the things you're trusting him for. What are, you, what are you trusting God to do in your life? If you start the process of changing or rebuilding or praying for someone, you've got to start. You've got to do the work. But you pray and you trust God to complete the work. Now we mentioned back in chapter 4 that God had temporarily put a stop to the enemy. In verse 15 of chapter 4, it says, When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it. So God frustrated what the opposition was doing way back in chapter 4. But I said back then, it's now, it's temporary. It's not, the opposition never stops. They regroup and they come back at you, but we have to be ready for it. The opposition doesn't always use the same tactics. How many know the enemy is smart, right? The enemy, he's, he's smart. He, he knows our weaknesses. He knows your hot buttons. He knows the things that kind of get your ire up. He knows what they are, and they're different for everybody. And he is going to get you or try to get you in those specific areas. Verse 2 of Nehemiah 6 says, Sambalat and Jessup sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. So what happens is the overt attempts to overthrow and to stop the work didn't work. And since the gates, they weren't up yet, there was still a chance that these guys can stop what, what Nehemiah was doing. If he could stop him or discredit him, the work would stop and the people would give up. If you're a leader in your ministry or a leader in your home, the enemy's going to go after you because if it gets you, he gets the rest of your family, of your ministry. Matthew 26, 31 says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, If you strike the shepherd, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. If they could get Nehemiah anyway, just one guy, if they can get him, the rest of the people will follow suit. How often do we hear about a leader falling and then all those who follow him kind of give in as well? They were trying to draw Nehemiah away from his work there will always be things and people to get your attention, to draw you away from what God has called you to do. Things that may sound important, they sound good, but if they're drawing you away from the main thing, then they need to be ignored. How many read that there's an old management book called Tyranny of the Urgent? It's about how important things can disrupt those that are urgent to do. They're all important, but they're not the main thing. And they may, sound, they may sound good. Nehemiah could have thought to himself, hey, you know what? They want to meet me. Maybe they want to help us. Maybe they want to, you know, they cooperate with us. The villages and plains of Ono, this place where they want to meet, was halfway be between Jerusalem and Samaria. So basically, they're saying, let's, let's meet halfway. Let's, we'll compromise if you compromise. How I many? that's the word of the day, right? Compromise. But the problem is the enemy never wants to compromise. He always and eventually wants to take over. He will compromise a little bit just to get a foothold in your life. And then once he gets that foothold, he's going to kick that door open as soon as he can. If they can compromise the leader, they can compromise Nehemiah, just compromise him. Then the whole work 
can be compromised. That's a good truth for us as believers and as a church because if we want to compromise to avoid conflict, the enemy has already got his foot in the door. There's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be strife in this world, let alone as believers. And the current climate is to just compromise, to go along to get along. How many have heard that phrase? Just go along to get along. Well, a definition of that phrase is this, to conform in order to have acceptance and security. But the problem is churches and Christians are called to be just the opposite. We're called to not conform. Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We as believers need to be alert to things that sound good. They sound like we could do that. They call us to compromise a little bit, and the minute we compromise, the minute we back down a little bit, the enemy gets his foot in the door. And what happens is he will draw you away now from what matters, because if you compromise a little bit here, what he's going to do is going to throw that back in your face at some point and say, we'll compromise a little bit more. How many know the enemy tempts you to sin? He just says how good it is, how great it is to sin. And the minute you sin, he's the first one to accuse you of sinning. And the minute you compromise your position as a believer, as soon as you do that, he's going to start beating you up for compromising and saying, well, if you compromised here, you can compromise over there. Verse 2 goes on and says in Nehemiah, they were scheming to harm me. When the enemy tries to get your attention and divert you from things of God, it's never for a good reason. It's never for a, a noble reason because he has no interest in compromising with you and benefiting you. It may sound good. It may sound beneficial at the time, but if it calls you to compromise, you know that the end is not going to work out because he only wants to destroy God's work in your life. What's the Bible say? He came, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I used to think that kill and destroy were the same thing. But he can destroy you without killing you. He can destroy your life without killing you. So he wants to do everything he can to compromise you to, to destroy your life. And we need to be confident and we need to be able to stand up to all those things or even the people that may distract us. There's always going to be folks that are trying to distract you, and they may mean well, but the enemy's using them to get you to compromise. Verse 3 says, So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot come down. Why should I stop the work and leave it and come down to you? Nehemiah was not fooled by their request. He knew what was in their heart. He knew they meant to harm him. He had discernment. How many of you have prayed for discernment in your life? The Bible says that, you know, you pray, God gives you wisdom. One of the spiritual gifts is discernment. We want discernment. And we all have it. We all have discernment if we choose to use it. You can have discernment and not use it, right? How many of you know to do something right and yet, yeah, you compromise and do something wrong? You talk yourself out of it. If you step back for a moment and you think about the situation and not let your emotions control the day, God will give you wisdom on how to handle it. When we go shopping for anything big, you know, like a car or anything, my, my thing is we're not going to buy it on the first day. Because no matter what car you see, it's going to be great, it's going to be new, it's going to be something that you want. And then your emotions are going to take over and buy that car right then. 
And then as you drive it off the lot, you kind of regret it, you know, buyer's remorse. So you go in with the logic, you go back home, you figure out the numbers, and you figure out everything, look at it logically. Then you make a decision. You don't let emotions control that. You don't let emotions control how you respond to situations. Because our instant reaction is you just want to jump in and do something emotional. Nehemiah didn't do that. He had discernment. He knew what these guys were up to. These guys never wanted the Jews to succeed. He never wanted them to win. And so Nehemiah knew that, and now they want to help. He also knew that for him to leave and talk with them meant that he was leaving the work of God. He was able to prioritize his life. He was able to prioritize his ministry. He knew that if he went down just to talk with them, they would have already won. They got him away, they distracted him, they took him away from the job, and the people would have kind of slacked off as well. And I wrote down here, everyone should have a list of priorities. What has God called each one of us to do? There's a leadership thing that that goes around, It's, it's a good test. Ask yourself a question. What is it in my life that only I can do? Something that I can't delegate. I can't give to somebody else to do. If it's a job, in other words, why did they hire you? What's the main reason for hiring you? I'll give you an example. Ministry. My job is to preach, right? That's, that's what you hired me to do. With the exception of if I'm on vacation, that is, that's why you hired me. So praying and preparing messages is something that I can't give to somebody else. I can't work in on a Sunday and say, hey, why don't you take this for me? I can't delegate it. And that also means that I have to not do things that would distract me from doing the main thing. Another example is parenting. There are things that only a parent should do. You can't delegate to give to somebody else. I'm not sure, I don't think anybody here is boarding, have their kids in boarding school, but I think boarding school is kind of a delegating your parental responsibility. Send your kids away for 10 months a year. You never see them. You're abdicating the thing that only you can do and you're giving it to somebody else. Only you should be able to apply correction to your child. Now, when I was a kid, that wasn't always the case. It was usually, if somebody saw me doing wrong, my parents were like, yeah, if you see him doing something wrong, you whoop him. We had a guy at our old church that, uh, he's a little bit older than me, and he would, he would say, when he went to church, anybody in the church, his parents said, if you see my kid doing something wrong, you have my permission to put him back in line. Now, that's changed over the years. Parents should be the ones who correct your child. You should also be their main cheerleader. It's not the same when someone else is encouraging your child more than you. How many have tried to send a coworker to your kid's sporting event to cheer them on? In other words, I can't make it to my kid's sporting event. You go and you cheer them on. Secretary, you go and you, you clap and you cheer them on. How does that work? Yeah. <laughs> You can't delegate that. You as a parent are the one who encourages them. You can't give it to somebody else to do. You can have other people do it with you, but you can't 
tell someone to do it in your place. God calls you to be a parent. God calls you to ministry. God calls you to a lay ministry. There are things that only you can do. There are things that God calls you to do that no one else in the ministry can do. And the number one thing that, at least in church work, consistency in ministry is what and is vital to keep the ministry going. Because people depended on Nehemiah to be there as their leader. And people in your ministry and in your life depend on you to be there. You can't always just go away and do what you want to do. How do you think people would have reacted if Nehemiah was only there half the time? Yeah, I'm going to go watch TV. You guys go ahead and build a wall. I'll come back and check on you in a couple of days. Then I'm going to go back home and watch more TV. I think that people wouldn't have got the work done. They'd have been like, he doesn't care. Why should we care? Luke 6.40 says, a student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. I've said this before, your kids will be like you are. Not how you talk to them, but how you react to them. More is caught than taught. When you talk as an adult, you hear your parents coming out of your mouth. It's because that's what you grew up with. We learned that on Wednesday night. So verse 4 in Nehemiah 6 says, Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Not only did he have discernment, he had determination. The enemy does not usually tempt us one time and say, Oh, well, he, he won't give in. I'm going to leave him alone. No, he is consistently nagging you and beating you up, trying to get you to make a wrong choice. Jesus was tempted three times. How did he combat that? He didn't argue with him. He didn't debate him. He just told him what the Bible says. And after three times, the enemy left. If temptation is wrong the first time, it'll be wrong no matter how often you're being tempted. And if you have determination, no amount of temptations will defeat you. If you are determined to do something, the temptations aren't going to affect you. Parents have to learn determination quickly. Because why? Because kids can be relentless in nagging you about something. And all the parents said, yeah. If you go to the store and they want something, at least mine used to do this, they will keep asking me until we physically leave the store. How often do your kids beg to stay home from school? Oh, come on, I'm going to school today. I don't feel good. My stomach hurts. I have a headache. Our rule was burning up or throwing up. That was it. Otherwise, they went to school. But now, I guess with this nonsense going on, they're not. But when they had to go to school, you send them to school. You don't give in, right? You don't, okay, I guess that you can stay home. You don't feel good. Okay. No. You send them kicking and screaming all the way to school because no amount of their begging is going to change your mind. You're determined to get them out of the house, to go to school. Now, I wrote down here, and this is just a personal thing of mine, parents should have the same determination when it comes to church. Now, for good or for not good, my kids always had to go to church. 
They may not have liked it, but just like school, they had to go. I know parents said, oh, he doesn't want to go to church today, so I'll let him stay home. No. So Nehemiah gets tempted four times, and he refuses four times. And all of a sudden, the temptation goes away. Right? No. The enemy ramps it up. In verse 5, it says, Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. <laughs> you read that, you want to laugh. It's kind of like, well, you know, I read it online, so it must be true. Or so-and-so told me, so it must be true. So he says, it's reported among the nations, and hey, Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king. And you have even anointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem, that there's a king in Judah. Now this report's going to get back to the king, so let's, let's confer, let's talk about this. What was he doing? He's blackmailing him, right? Not only does he want to draw Nehemiah away from what God's called him to do, now he's threatening to tell them that Nehemiah's planning this coup. Does that sound familiar in the news lately? Letters like this, when, you, when he sent them, they were usually sealed because the only person that was supposed to read them was the guy who was supposed to get it. Well, Sambalat wanted everyone to see what the letter said. He wanted to inflict fear on the people there because in those days, any threat against a Persian king, any kind of talk of revolt, man, he would, he would put it down quickly and mercilessly. He would just come in and just wipe everybody out. And what he was doing was Sambalat was hoping to put fear in the people. So much fear that the Jews would stop working for, what the fear, for their fear of what the government was going to do to them. Does that sound familiar? Bringing it to current day events, how often have we been made to be fearful of what the authorities, do, the authorities want to do to us if we continue to meet as a body of believers? Now, we've never been mandated to close in this state, but other states that's happened. Small businesses have been made to be fearful of what might happen to them if they operated their businesses like Christians and lived up to Christian principles. How many know Mike the, Mike the Pillow guy? My Pillow. He is being blackballed by everybody because he's simply a believer. He can't sell his products. Bed Bath & Beyond doesn't sell them. Kohl's doesn't sell them anymore. They're kicking them off all the internet. Why? Because he, he lives like a Christian. We're made to feel, be fearful of what others are going to do to us because of who we are. And verse 8 says, I send him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. Nehemiah knew it was a lie. And he called him on it. We need to stand up for the truth. If we know it's a lie, we need to say it's a lie. Even if it's unpopular. Of course Sambalat knew it was a lie. But it didn't stop him from making the, making the charge. One of my favorite quotes, Churchill said, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. The problem was, if he says this, regardless if it's a lie, people could believe it. People could see that, and they know that, you know, if, if 
the king hears it's going to be a coup, they're going to come down and crush us. Yeah, it's a possibility. Maybe I should be afraid of what's going to happen. How many have either said or had it been said to you, hey, people are saying, people are talking, or, you know, it's been reported that this is happening. What it is, it's a generic accusation with no basis in fact. Usually, when that happens, when someone comes to you and says, hey, you know, people are talking about this, the person that's talking about it is the one telling you that others are talking about it. It matters to them. They're not hearing it. It only matters to them. And since this letter said that he was planning a coup, it also said that he was planning to make Nehemiah was making himself a king. And if this letter got out and the king heard this letter, their ramifications for the people could be serious. I mean, it was a serious thing. It could happen to them. And the lie was designed to keep the people in fear. Sound familiar? Even though it was a bad, even though it was a lie, the possibility of bad things happening was real. Verse 9 says, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. If we make them afraid enough, we, we scare them enough with what could happen, then they'll just, they'll just shrivel in fear of what God, or what the enemy could do. Now notice what Nehemiah did not do. He didn't try to defend himself to Sambalat. He didn't respond. He didn't go down to argue with him. He didn't say it's a lie. He didn't do anything. He didn't respond. He didn't get into a fight. He didn't get into a discussion. He just kept on working. We have to be careful in how we respond to criticism or opposition. Sometimes it's just not worth it to get into an argument. Because if they're lying about you, they're not going to change your position. And to argue with them is just a waste of time. It takes you away from what God's called you to do. Whether that's parenting, your job, your ministry, your life, whatever God's calling you to do, the enemy is always trying to distract you and get you away from it and talk about things that you shouldn't be talking about. You keep on working, doing things for God, and let the opposition be where it is. Now, this is where reputation comes into play. Up until now, Nehemiah was doing everything right. He was working right with the guys. He was doing the same thing they were doing. He was trustworthy as a leader. He often he gave money and food to those who needed it without any kind of fanfare. He fought for those who were being taken advantage of. He was doing everything right. He had a good reputation by what he did, not by what he said. And his reputation along with God's protection, would be his only means of defense. When people bring false accusations against you, sometimes it's your reputation. It's the only thing that's able to save you from their false accusation. Warren Wiersbe says, if we take care of our character, God will take care of our reputation. He ignored the accusation. He ignored the lie, prayed to God, and went back to work. It's easy to get drawn away in defending yourself and spend all your time defending your position. And what happens? God or the enemy brings to a screeching halt what you were really doing that mattered. You know, if Billy Graham were, had to answer every negative thing about him, he'd never have time to preach. 
But what he did is he maintained a good character. He, he set up safety things for himself. He had rules that he didn't break. He, he protected himself and he did everything correctly, biblically. And so when people would say something to him, his character was so good that people would, nobody would believe it. Verse 9 says, But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So now Sanballat and the others realized that they're not going to have any effect on Nehemiah. Those guys in particular aren't going to do anything. So what do they do? They go out and hire a false prophet to do their work. Verse 10. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. So you have this dude, Shemaiah, who is pretending to be afraid of Sanballat. He's hiding in his house, kind of setting up a lie for Nehemiah. And he says to Nehemiah, basically, hey, I'm afraid of those guys. You need to be afraid of them too. They're going to they're come to kill you. And if they kill you, they're probably going to kill me. Let's go hide in the temple. And we know that they can't come in the temple. I'm a priest. It's okay. We've we got access. We're allowed to go in there. And they're not going to follow us into God's house. What's happening? Again, the attempt to bring fear into Nehemiah's life. Enemy's perfect weapon is fear. The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. You can't have fear and you can't have faith in the same position. You either have faith or you have fear. If he can make you so afraid of what might happen, it'll, it'll cripple your life. We have, a, we have a disease that we've called agoraphobia, right? Definition is an anxiety disorder characterized by symptoms of anxiety in situations where the person perceives the environment to be so unsafe with no easy way to escape. If you let fear get into your life of what could possibly happen, it'll paralyze you and not enable you to do anything. And I think we're seeing a lot of that today. There's so much fear in the world, it's crippling people. And if we're not careful, it will creep into the church. Was the possibility of Nehemiah being killed real? Absolutely. Absolutely. Those guys, if they had a chance, they would kill him. So the possibility was real. But he didn't let the fear of that stop him. Verse 11. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Again, God's discernment. How did he know that this guy was a false prophet? Because he realized that this guy was lying. What he was saying was not biblically correct. Verse 12 says this. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalet had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. He knew this guy couldn't be real because he knew God's law. God's law says in Numbers 18, 7, it says, but only you and your sons, talking to the priest, only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with anything or everything at the altar inside the curtain. I'm giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary must be put to death. He knew that this guy had no authority to say, let's go in the temple. Because the law didn't give them that grace. If he went in that temple, according to this law, God would strike him down. 
So he knew that what he was saying was not true. He knew because he knew God's word. When people come at you and temptations come at you, the only way you're going to defeat them is by knowing what God's word says about it. The Bible says if you're a prophet and you, are, you prophesy 99 times and you are missed one, you are not God's prophet. If we expect to have discernment in difficult situations, we need to know what God has already said about it. Now, part of Nehemiah's character was he was a shepherd, a true shepherd. He wasn't a hireling, as the Bible calls it in John 10. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. There's a, te- there's a story in the Old Testament. These two women, they both had babies. This is when Solomon was king. And one of the women's baby died. And the one whose baby died took the one who was still living. And they were fighting about whose baby it was. And so they bring it to the king. And the king says, I'll tell you whose it is. It's nobody's. Bring the baby here. We'll cut him in half. And you can each have a half of the baby. And the woman whose baby it was not said, yeah, good. That's a good idea. Cut him in half. And the mother said, no, no, no. Give, give the baby to the other woman. Same example. The other woman didn't care. It wasn't her child. The mom cared enough to give the baby away, and Solomon figured it out and gave, obviously gave the baby to the right mom. Why? Because just like the hired hand, it's not yours. It's not your sheep. It's not your problem, not your thing. If Nehemiah would have run away and hid, it would have killed his reputation at that point. All the things he had done up to that point would have been null and void because of one thing he did, run away. And the people would have been scattered by fear. If, they, if Nehemiah was afraid, and he was a faithful guy, if he's afraid, then we need to be afraid too, and we're going to run away. Which comes back to the same thing. You can't be ruled by fear, but by trust. Verse 14 in Nehemiah 6 says, Remember Sanballat and Tobiah, Nehemiah was praying. Oh my God, because of what they have done, remember also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who have been trying to intimidate me. So Nehemiah is recognizing a conspiracy that's coming up around him. All the prophets, or at least two of the prophets that were there, were on the side of the enemy. There would be a problem for him because people at that time looked up to the prophets. They believed everything the prophets said. But Nehemiah was a layman. He was just your ordinary churchgoer and guy. And he was opposed by the professionals. But he still stood his ground. So you had this guy, Nehemiah, just a garden variety Jew, and all the prophets and all the priests and all the ones who were coming against him and Sambalat and all those guys were all against him. All the people in the positions of authority were coming against him, and yet Nehemiah still stood his ground. It means Christians shouldn't be intimidated by those who call themselves professionals, yet deny the basics of the faith. There's a lot being made about faith in the news lately. Who's a Christian, who's not a Christian? Well, the person who's a Christian is the one who believes what the Bible says, what it says, 
and how it says it. Not one who tries to twist things up. The prayer that was offered a couple weeks ago, he ended his prayer by saying amen and a woman. How many heard that? Gobbledygook. This guy was a preacher. Preacher. Knows nothing about what God's word says. Amen has nothing to do with man or woman. It's just a phrase that says, so be it. It's a, an Old Testament phrase that means, so be it. So you have folks like that who are professionals. We as believers don't need to be intimidated by that because they're not following God's word. Now what happens when we trust God and we don't let fear control us? Nehemiah 6.15 says, So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this and the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Now the Bible tells us not to continually ask for signs and wonders, right? Jesus says, you know, the Gentiles ask for signs and wonders. We don't just have faith. However, God does miracles and God does signs and wonders in order to get people's attention, to let them know that, hey, this is actually a God thing. He didn't, the Jews, they weren't talking about the Jews in that sentence. They were talking about all the people outside. And they looked in and said, wow, they built this wall in less than two months. It had to be God doing that. Whenever we see something that is a miracle that only God can do, we need to be able to broadcast that and let people know what God's doing. And God does it not only for us, but so that other people can say, hey, I can't explain it. That must be a God thing. Now I'm going to close with this. I just finished reading 1 Peter. How many know 1 Peter, 2 Peter? 1 Peter, and especially 2 Peter, talks about the persecution of the church. How to endure it when it comes and what all to do. In that book, there's one in that, you know, 1 Peter. The constant that was always mentioned in 1 Peter when dealing with persecution, opposition, was not to quit because of the opposition. It may be difficult. It may be hard. But Peter calls us, God through Peter says, we need to persevere through it. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in the coming days, weeks, months, years. I have an idea, a personal idea, and it's not good. But the question is, when that opposition comes and people call you to compromise and things come up in, in the world and in news and everything that's out there that's calling you to maybe stand back and self-assess and, and again, do you compromise what you believe in order to do that? Peter says, don't quit. Don't compromise. There's going to be struggle. There was struggle for Nehemiah. There was struggle with the people. But he didn't stop. He had to persevere through it. And when he got through, the wall was built. Gates were hung. The city thrived. I think what's happening now in the world is, is God allowing people to have their eyes open a little bit. We as Americans have had it really easy for the past couple hundred years. And now things may become a little bit difficult. I mean, for some, not everybody. A lot of people don't come to Christ because things are going well. But when things begin to turn south a little bit, 
It gets people's attention. I believe that through this, God can bring a great revival. But that means we as believers have to be consistent. So when others see us and they're struggling, they want to know what God says about these things, we need to be, know, need to be able to know how to answer them. Now right now we're, you know, in the snow and all that and we're doing our broadcast online and we do it all the time. It's always online. But online is only a temporary thing. It's not meant to replace meeting together. It's an emergency thing. We can do it when there's snow. We can do it when you're sick. But it's not meant to replace meeting together. The Bible says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. It doesn't say don't forsake unless there's trouble, unless there's a pandemic, unless there's this, unless there's that. Then you don't have to meet at all. It doesn't say that. It says don't forsake. These are all external things we can use in emergencies and to reach people. But it's never meant to stop what God's doing here. Because if God can stop what he's doing here, and if we only have an online presence, what happens when that goes down? They've taken a number of things offline. You can't get on Facebook. You can't get on Twitter. Mike the pillow guy can't get anywhere. How long do you think it's going to be before they take that away? And if we just give in and we're only online, and that's our only means of reaching people, and all of a sudden that's gone, what are we going to do? That's why we as a church and as Christians have to continue to not compromise, to stand tall, to live for Christ, and regardless of what's happening around us, respond the way Christ would respond to situations. And that is one with love and compassion and the truth. Would you stand as we close this morning? Would you bow your heads for a moment? Whether you're here in the sanctuary with us or whether you're home watching, we're glad you're part of what God's doing. But you never want to end a church service without offering someone the opportunity to come to know Christ. If you're watching or you're here, you may have been in church all your life. Or maybe this is your very first time to pick us up online or, or whatever. I sat in church for three years. Three services a week, wasn't a Christian. Everyone thought I was. And it wasn't until God got my attention that I actually came to know Christ. So you can be in this church for years. You come to church, you're faithful, you give, but you still don't know Christ. Or you're at home and you just happen, you know, we just say by accident, but I think it's like a God thing that you turn us on this channel on or whatever channel you're watching that you're here to hear what God's word says. And the Bible says nothing is by accident. God ordains everything to be. So if you're here or you're watching online, it's because God has orchestrated for you to hear. And something that was said or done during this service is meant for you. And you know that because something that was said or done just kind of stuck in your spirit. And the Bible does it, say that because God uses his word to get you in a relationship with him. The Bible says he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. But the only way he's going to get in is if you let him in. 
And the only way to let him into your life and to transform your life is to acknowledge yourself a sinner. We're all sinners, the Bible says. We're all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. But the Bible also says that God gave us a, a remission for those sins. Jesus Christ came to pay your debt for sin. The things that you committed all your life, we all know we're sinners. No one doubts that they're a sinner. But you don't know how to get rid of that sin. The Bible says that Jesus came and he took that sin from you. And when he suffered and died on the cross, that was the payment that you should have made, that I should have made. He paid it for us. And the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. So if you're here or you're watching, you've never really accepted Christ. You've never acknowledged that you're a sinner in need of saving. That your sin will keep you out of heaven. If you've never acknowledged that and you've never asked Christ to forgive you of those sins, which he does freely, then today is the day. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week. Today. If you've never accepted Christ and you want to do that, you want to ask God to forgive you of your sins, you want to enter into a relationship with the living God, if you're here, I want you to raise your hands. If you're at home, I want you to, we're going to pray in a moment. All right, for those at home, I'm going to pray with you, and then we're going to, I'll pray with the folks in the church here. If you're at home, you've committed your life to Christ, you've asked God to forgive you, I want you to pray with me. I'm going to pray for you, in fact. Father, thank you for those who have watched this message. Thank you for those that your Holy Spirit has shown that they need a relationship with God. And I pray that you would, at this beginning point in their life, that you would fill them with your Spirit, that you would encourage them, that you would really let them know, Lord, they have a new life. The Bible says all things are gone, new things have come. You're a new creation in Christ. You are a new person. But the Bible also says now you want to get planted, you want to get involved in a place that will help you grow. So, Father, I pray that you would put that burning desire in their heart and in their spirit to be a part of a family of God, whether it's our church or wherever you live, a church that you can go to that's a Bible-believing church. Make sure it's a Bible-believing church. So, Father, I pray that you would bless them and encourage them that way and allow their life to be transformed by your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we ask that. For those in our fellowship here, I thank you for being a part of what we're doing here, and I know that God is continuing to use you, and I pray right now in the name of Jesus that you would fill each one of us. The Bible says to continue to be filled every day. So, Lord, we want you to fill us with your spirit Continue to give us wisdom and encouragement and boldness, all that we need, Lord, to make our lives what you would call a success so that people see you in us. And then when things get hard for people or things get difficult and they want to know things about God, man, I pray that you would put us in a position, put us in their field of vision, put us in their, in their same vicinity so we can talk to them and encourage them and tell them what Jesus did for us orchestrate those divine appointments and let the gospel of Christ be spread. And then let us come back every week to be encouraged and challenged and sent out again. Father, continue to grow and use this church to reach people with the love and the power of God. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. And Lord, I pray now for your safe mercy, your traveling mercies as we head home today. Keep everyone safe, Lord, on the roads. I pray that everyone makes it home safely and securely and will trust you to guard us in everything. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. 
And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Keep safe. See you Wednesday.